Well, it's good to be with you this morning. Uh, I guess we're not really together, but we are united through the bonds of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so in a, a way that's maybe even more real, we are together. And it's good to worship with you. Uh, it's a, a privilege to bring the word. And I want to begin by reading from Second Peter chapter 3, uh, verses 8 through 15. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness, and steady is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, I've, uh, my, my folks at Hope Church, they're, they're used to this. I have a question to begin with. Can we trust God to keep his promises? Can we trust God to follow through with his word? Now, of course, you all are, are good Christians, so you will answer, yes, pastor. God can be trusted to keep his promises. Yes, of course, God can tr be trusted to follow through with what he has said will be. You know the right answer is yes. But can we really trust God? And I'm not, I'm not talking about just a, a general trust that isn't rooted in anything real or, or anything certain. I'm asking about deep trust. Trust that is sure and certain. Trust that seems to be so deep it's rooted in the bedrock of creation itself. Can we really, really, truly trust God? Well, you all are at home right now, so I can't hear you, but I'm just imagining that you're, you're saying right now, yes, yes, of course, you're shouting at me, yes, we can trust God. And I believe we can as well. But sometimes trust just seems so hard to come by. We want evidence. We want proof that there is a reason to trust. And evidently, the early Christians were having a difficult time trusting Jesus' promise to them that he would return. Evidently, the early Christians were having a difficult time trusting that Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension had any real impact on creation as it is now. And can you blame them? They looked around, and there were still the poor among them. In fact, many of them were the poor. And there were still hungry people, and Rome was more oppressive than ever, and people were still dying. In some way, some ways, life seemed even more oppressive after Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. In many ways, it seemed to these early Christians that life was very much the same 
as it had been before their faith in Jesus. And in some ways, they were even worse off. Take, for instance, the stoning of Stephen. A good, righteous, godly man was stoned to death because he lived his life in proclamation that Jesus is the Messiah, God come to us to inaugurate the rule and reign of God. Stephen, again, a godly, righteous man, stoned to death for following Jesus. And so I'm imagining it was hard to, to, be, to believe and, and hard to place their trust in Jesus when so much of the world seemed the same and what had changed didn't seem much better. So they asked, and they wondered if they really could trust that Jesus would be true to his word and return to them. So you know, people are quite remarkable. And you can take that in a number of ways, but uh, people are, are quite remarkable. And we can suffer through much if we know that it's for a purpose. We can suffer through much when we know that we aren't alone in our suffering. These early Christians thought that Jesus was going to return quickly. And, and if that were the case, then they could endure hardships and oppression because it would only be for a while or, or not long. And even, even those things that weren't difficult, but just the mundaneness of life. If they knew Jesus was going to be with them, they could do anything. And so they asked, where is he? Where is he? Didn't Jesus promise to return? Why is he so slow in coming? Can we really trust Jesus? Because as we look around, the situation doesn't seem to indicate much has changed. And it doesn't seem like Jesus is coming anytime soon. Their wondering and even doubting had created some vulnerabilities within the community of believers. There's some certainties in life. And uh, one of them seems to be that anytime there's a vulnerable situation or a, a vulnerable group of people, someone seizes upon their vulnerability and tries to take advantage, right? There's always people looking to take advantage of the vulnerable. And so Peter, as he, he's writing this letter, he, he reminds the believers that there will be scoffers among them. And not only there will be, there are scoffers among them. And these scoffers were trying their best to persuade these vulnerable Christians who were wondering, where is Jesus? Is he really coming back? These scoffers said, look around you. Nothing's changed. Nothing's different. In fact, this is what Peter says in 2 Peter 3, 3 through 4. First of all, you must understand this, that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and indulging their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since our ancestors died, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Translation, nothing's changed. Nothing's changed, or at least nothing seems to have changed. These scoffers pointed out that things seem to be exactly as they always had been. People are still dying. There's still all kinds of terrible things around us. But Peter, being a good shepherd was careful to remind the people that things, in fact, were different. And even though God had seemed slow to fulfill God's promise that Jesus would return, they could still trust. Trust because to God a day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years is like a day. I, I, I read a, a joke about that this week. 
see if I can remember it. Uh, so there was a, a good man, and he, he kneeled in prayer, and, and he, he prayed, and he said, God, is it true that uh, a second is like a million years to you? And, and God said to him, well, yes, my son, uh, you're right, that's true. Uh, and he said, well, God, is it, is it true that a penny is like a million dollars to you? And, and God said, yes, my beloved, it's true. And he said, well, God, could you spare a penny? And, and God replied, give me a second. I thought that was a funny one. But anyways, back to the important matters. For God, time isn't like our time. God isn't limited by time and, and may even work outside of time. We can trust that God has, what God has said will be, will be, even if it seems like he's taking forever to accomplish it. And there's some, some really tricky language in this passage. And I don't mean tricky in the sense that it's meant to trip us up. But it's a little hard to understand just what Peter was trying to say. He talks about a day being like a thousand years and a thousand years being like a day. And I, and I think in general we can track with that, that. That for God, he doesn't count time the same way we do. But then Peter talks about the day of the Lord. And he's referring to Jesus' return. And he goes on to talk about creation being destroyed or burnt up and this new heavens and new earth coming about. And I think, one, what a passage for Advent, right? I mean, that doesn't sound very peaceful on this Sunday of peace. And we're reading about destruction and fire and burning and heaven and earth passing away. But I think we often mis misinterpret or misread this passage and others like it. Uh, we, we read this passage uh, again about creation being destroyed or burnt up and this new heavens new, and new earth coming about. And I think we often read passages like this one and others that talk about blood moons and, and earthquakes and, and disasters and, and all of these things. And we read them very literally. But what the Bible writers are trying to convey to us with this type of language is that at Jesus' return, it will be such a tremendous event it's as if the cosmos will be shaken and the created order of things will be reordered, which isn't necessarily a gentle process. And, and so as Jesus returns, we read these scriptures about his return. And what they're saying is that at Christ's return, all things will be made new because the Holy One of God, God, God's self, will be among us. And when the Holy One of God comes and is among us, there is a cosmic reordering. It, it, it's as if the earth is totally shaken like an earthquake and the heavens will be reordered and, and it's, it's this absolutely universe-altering event. And that's why we read in the Gospel of Mark, at Jesus' baptism, it, it, it talks about the, the heavens being rendered open or the heavens ripped, ripped open. When the Holy One of God comes and the Holy Spirit descends into him, uh, like a dove, that, that's a universe-altering event. It, it, the heavens are ripped open. And, and so as we read from Peter here, this, is, this isn't necessarily that the earth is going to be blown up and, and fire is going to consume it all. It, what Peter is saying is when the holiness of God, when the Holy One of God comes, there will be a refining. There will be a refining with fire. Because what... What that is unholy can last in God's presence? Well, nothing. Nothing. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself there. Uh, so Peter, Peter reminds the believers that it is as, as they wait 
expectantly for Jesus' return, to keep in mind what that return means. It means nothing less than the reordering of creation. It means nothing less than the renewal and restoration of all things back under the rule and reign of God. A cosmic reordering. It means the, the subversion of systems of oppression. It means freedom for the slave, uplift for the lowly, and all things remade back to God's original intention. That's why in 2 Peter 1, 16-18, Peter references Jesus' transfiguration. And, and I don't know if you remember that, so I'll just give you the really quick version. Uh, Jesus went up on, onto a mountain with uh, Peter, James, and John. And as they were up there, uh, kind of remarkable, Moses and Elijah showed up. And Peter, true to himself, he, I just imagine him uh, sort of stammering and stuttering, much like I do, and, and, and saying, it, uh, it's so good for us to be here. Let's build three, three tabernacles, three shelters, so we can stay here. And, and then a, a cloud comes over it, signifying the very presence of God on the mountain. And when the cloud goes, who remains? Only Jesus, not Moses and Elijah. And, and as they're there... We hear from, from God the Father, this is my beloved, my, my son, listen to him. And Jesus' clothes become dazzling white or, or bright and shiny. He is transfigured. And in that we find something's happened. It might even be a glimpse into the coming of Jesus again when all things will be transfigured. All things will be made new. Uh, the, the presence of God will be here. And when the presence of God is among us, there really is a transformation that the holiness of God reigns forth. So Jesus and the disciples were on the mountain, and Peter says, we were there. I can testify. We heard the voice of God because we were there. These words from the Father of affirmation that Jesus, in fact, is God. And they also, again, saw Jesus' clothes become dazzling white and shiny, a glimpse into the transfiguring work that is to come when Jesus transfigures the whole cosmos. When the Holy One of God comes, the entire cosmos will be reordered, and what is impure, what is imperfect, what is unjust, what is unlovely, what is unmerciful and unkind will be purified with a refiner's fire. It's like precious metals. Uh, we read that elsewhere in Scripture. Uh, you, if you take gold and you melt it down, uh, that fire, it burns off the impurities, and, and what remains is the pure, the, the good. And so we're, we're reading this passage where it sounds like destruction and, and the burning away of all things. And, but what Peter is really saying is, this is a refiner's fire that comes. And all of those things in this world that exist that are not right, that are not good, that are not lovely, that are not pure, that are not holy, will be burned away. But things remain. What remains is the good and the beautiful and the lovely. You might even say the holy and the godly, the peaceable, the merciful, the forgiving. Can we trust God to keep his promises? Can God be trusted to follow through with his word? Well, evidently, we can. Because Jesus affirmed by the Father at his baptism and on the mountain at the transfiguration that he is God here among us. And not only that, but Jesus proves to us again and again 
that he can be trusted. Trusted because, and, and I'm going to make a bunch of references here without actually quoting the scriptures, uh, so just stick with me, hopefully. But uh, we can trust Jesus because again and again, uh, he, he proves that his word is true. He, he sends two disciples into Jerusalem to make preparations for the Passover. And he tells them, and, and this one's from the Gospel of Mark, he tells them, you will find a man carrying a jug of water. Which was interesting because men didn't carry jugs of water. Women carried jugs of water. So this would have been different. And Jesus says to them, you will find a man carrying a jug of water. Say to him, the master, uh, have you made preparations? Or the master needs the upper room. And the two disciples go into Jerusalem. And what do they find? A man carrying a jug of water. Who has an upper room. But preparations are being made. Evidently, Jesus' word can be trusted. And then Jesus predicts that he will be spit on, he will be mocked, he will be beaten. And what happens to him? He's spit on, he's mocked, he's beaten. Evidently, Jesus' words can be trusted. And Jesus tells Peter, uh, you will deny me thrice before the cock crows twice. Or you'll deny me three times before the cock crows twice. And what happens? Peter denies him three times before the rooster crows twice. Evidently, Jesus' words can be trusted. Three times, Jesus predicts his, that he will die, and three days later, rise from the dead. And what happened? He was crucified, dead, buried, and three days later, he was raised from the dead through the power of the Holy Spirit. Evidently, Jesus' word can be trusted. He told the disciples... After the resurrection, I will meet you in Galilee. Uh, he tells them, I'll meet you in Galilee. And, and what happens? He goes to Galilee and he finds the disciples locked in an upper room for fear of the Jews. They were afraid. And what does Jesus do? He shows up and he says, don't be afraid. Peace be with you. And he breathes on them the Holy Spirit. My peace I give you. My peace I leave with you. Evidently, Jesus' words can be trusted. Jesus' word can be trusted, and because his word can be trusted, we wait. We wait. We wait for the return of Christ because Jesus said he would come back. But how we wait is as important or maybe even more important than the fact that we wait. How we are in the waiting is as important or more important than the simple fact that we wait we wait in an active manner, leading lives of holiness and godliness. That's what Peter instructs us to do, to live holy and godly lives as we speed the coming of our Lord. Lives that are holy, lives that are godly. Lives that declare Jesus is at work now, even as we await his return. And it means that we take seriously the transfiguring, the transforming work of God even now. Looking forward to God's coming is really, it's part of what enables us to live holy and godly lives. To know that our waiting isn't in vain, our labor is not in vain, but that Christ is going to return. And because we are certain of it, we can live holy and godly lives now. And living holy and godly lives really is the best evidence of Jesus' coming. It is the best evidence that Jesus is going to return when his people live holy and godly lives. 
Uh, I'm going to go on a tangent here. Uh, I, oftentimes, you know, some of you uh, some and different folks will ask me, well, Pastor, we're not really sure how to evangelize. We're, we're not really sure. We need somebody to teach us. I mean, honestly, there's a really simple answer to this. It's maybe difficult to live out at times, but the simple answer is love well. The, the best evangelism is to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And in doing that, to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The best evidence, the best evangelism we can do is to live holy and godly lives. And when someone asks you, why, why do you believe? You can tell them, maybe you won't say the word transfigured, but you can say, boy, the Lord has transfigured my life. He ha- has transformed my life, and I'm expecting that he'll continue to do it as we wait for his coming. Again, you're not going to probably say those words, but the sentiment is there, right? That God is at work in my life. And I don't know why you should believe, but let me tell you why I do. Because the Holy One of God has come to us, and it's making all the difference in my life. And so I'm waiting expectantly for the completion of that work when Christ returns. By living holy and godly lives, as we wait for Jesus' return, evidences what this coming kingdom is going to look like. Living holy and godly lives now is preparation for the kingdom of God. To come. The old order of things is going to pass away, but what will remain is beautiful, the the godly, the holy. So we wait in such a way that we store up these things as a heavenly treasure. Living holy and godly lives only makes sense in this life when we live for the coming kingdom. We bring the future kingdom into the present when we evidence it now by longing for Christ's return and living in such a way that we sign the promise of that future to the world even now. And I'm thinking that a people who trust Jesus will evidence that trust by living for and into the kingdom of God. A a people who know that Jesus can be trusted will live holy and godly lives as we speed the coming of our Lord. And I'm thinking this morning, still morning, barely, I'm thinking this morning that a people who trust Jesus will be at peace with God. I'm thinking that a people who trust Jesus will be at peace with God. Though God may seem slow in keeping his promise, we are at peace with God because we can trust that Jesus' words are true. At peace because we're not left without evidence of Jesus' coming. In fact, we who are transformed by the grace of God, living lives of holiness and godliness, are the evidence. We are the evidence. Of the coming kingdom. We are a people whose peace is rooted in trust that as God has been in the past, God will continue to be. As God has been transfiguring our lives, so too will God transfigure all of creation at Jesus' return. Trust and peace, leading to participation in the timeless kingdom of God where we trust that Jesus, who was transfigured on the mountaintop, <coughs> excuse me, will return to us and transfigure all of creation. And we get to participate. And we get to participate. Participate by living holy lives, which means we are constantly saying yes to God. Evidencing that coming kingdom by saying, yes, Lord, I will be generous with, with what you've given me. All that I have is yours, and I will be generous. Yes, Lord, I will forgive others just as you've forgiven me. 
Yes, Lord. As hard as it is, I will love my enemies and not speak ill of them. Yes, Lord. I will seek mercy and to be merciful. Yes, Lord. I will live in such a way that I build up and keep from destroying people in your creation. Lord, I will evidence the holy life by continually saying yes to you again and again. And as we wait for Jesus' return, we see the apparent slowness of God is actually for the sake of salvation. It's actually an act of mercy. We get to participate in that transfiguring and renewing work of God by living lives of such beauty and grace that we are in fact glimpsing and evidencing the coming kingdom of God even now as we wait. Can we trust? Can we trust Jesus to do what he said he would do? Yes. Yes, and we get to exhibit our trust and our peace with God by living holy and godly lives now as we participate in the kingdom of God, which is already here and not yet here. Longing for Christ's return, we say, Come, Lord Jesus, come, and help us to evidence your coming by living holy and godly lives in preparation for your return when your peace will reign forever. Now, normally I would say, have I, if I've spoken the truth, would you say amen? But I can't hear you. Uh, I'll say it anyway. If I've spoken the truth, would you say amen? Well, there's a few of you here. Well, we, we have a great honor this morning of, of sharing in the Lord's Supper. And if you, if you have uh, bread and juice with you, uh, we invite you to participate. In the Church of the Nazarene, communion is open to all. All who confess that Jesus is Lord. All who ha have said that they really do trust. In Jesus, you don't have to be a member here or even a regular attender here, uh, but those who trust in the Lord are welcome to participate. The communion supper instituted by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is a sacrament which proclaims his life, his suffering, his sacrificial death and resurrection and the hope of his coming again. It shows forth the Lord's death until his return. The supper is a means of grace in which Christ is present by the Spirit. It is to be received in reverent appreciation and grateful, gratefulness for the work of Christ. All those who are truly repentant, forsaking their sins, and believing in Christ for salvation are invited to participate in the death and resurrection of Christ. We come to the table that we may be renewed in life and salvation and be made one by the Spirit. In unity with the church, we confess our faith. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. And so we pray. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we trust you. We trust that what you have said will be, will be, because you've proven yourself over and over again. Proven yourself in the scriptures. You've proven yourself in our lives. And even when it seems like you're so slow, we're reminded that your apparent slowness is actually your grace at work, desiring that more and more would be saved. And we pray, Lord, that as we partake of this meal, that in some ways it would be an appetizer, uh, a meal before the, the great wedding banquet that is to come at your return. And Lord, we pray that 
this little bit of bread and this little bit of juice would nourish us. And as it makes its way into our body, we would be reminded of how needful we are of your spirit to dwell within us. Because, Lord, the call is to be holy and godly, but apart from you, we can't do it. But we give thanks this morning that you've given yourself to us. You've given an example of what it is to live a life of holiness and godliness. And you haven't left us alone, but you have spoken peace to us. And you have given us the spirit of peace, the great Holy Spirit, as a gift of our salvation. And so we give thanks. Amen. I, I was going to continue reading the liturgy this morning, but I actually want to deviate a little bit. When Jesus meets with the disciples in the upper room, and he takes the bread and he takes the juice, when he takes that cup, I guess he didn't take juice, but he, when he takes the cup, he, he says, this, this is my blood, uh, the blood of the covenant. And, and I've always just kind of read it and thought, okay, good, he's made a covenant with us, but not thought much about it. But Jesus there, he, he's centering the meal upon himself. He, he's turning it all towards himself. And he's pointing back to Exodus when Moses gathered the people and they made a great number of sacrifices and he took half of the blood and he put it and he sprinkled it on the altar, which was uh, supposedly where, where God's presence was, Yahweh's presence was. They sprinkled the blood on the altar and then he took half of the blood and I know this is a little gross, but he sprinkled half the blood on the people. And this was a covenantal service, uh, a covenantal moment. And what was happening there was... was this covenant of saying, God has bound himself to you. And you have bound yourselves to God. This God who has liberated you, brought you out of, of Egypt. He set you free. And so when Jesus takes that cup and he says, I, I'm making a new covenant. What he's saying is, this is my blood. I, God in the flesh, am binding myself to you. And all who will take this cup and drink it are binding themselves to me, committing themselves to follow after me in the way of discipleship. And I will liberate you and set you free. Would you open the top layer if, if you have one of these little cups? And I, I heard a pastor say, with all the crinkling noise, oh, that's the sound of worship right there. Let's we take the bread. And we're reminded that this is Christ's body. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ broken for you. May it preserve you blameless unto everlasting life. Eat in remembrance that Christ died for you and be thankful. Now, go ahead and if you have, again, if you have one of these, peel that second layer off. The blood of our Lord Jesus Christ shed for you. May it preserve you blameless unto everlasting life. Drink this in remembrance that Christ died for you and be thankful. May I say one more prayer? Uh, Father, we're grateful. We're grateful that you've made a covenant with us and that we get to participate in the coming kingdom. Equip us for all that you have. 
in store for us in the days to come. We ask it in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.